Hi, this is Matthew May, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tavi Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Matthew E. May. Matt is the founder of Edit Innovation, an ideas agency based in Los Angeles, California. He has worked as a close advisor on innovation with senior management at several companies, including ADP, Edmonds, Intuit, and Toyota. His writings and work have appeared in several respected publications, including Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Time, Forbes, American Express Open Forum, Inc. Magazine, and Strategy in Business. Matt is also the author of four critically acclaimed, award-winning, and best-selling books on innovation, including his latest, The Laws of Subtraction, Six Simple Rules for Winning in the Age of Excess Everything, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and it's good to be here. Now, Matt, in your book, you describe what you refer to as the Six Laws of Subtraction. And I think a good starting point for today's discussion is how did you come up with these six laws? And perhaps more importantly, what do you mean by subtraction beyond simply that notion many of us might have that it refers to cutting costs or learning to do more with less? Uh, would you like me to take the last part first? Then? Sure. Okay. Um, well, I, I think that subtraction is uh, the ability or the skill to remove uh, anything that is unnecessary, uh, adds no value, uh, and gets in the way of, of a great experience. And I think that perhaps uh, my friend John Maida, uh, who wrote The Laws of Simplicity, uh, was my inspiration for that. His tenth law of simplicity was subtract the obvious and add the meaningful. Um, and that really is what I wanted to dig into in uh, in the laws of subtraction. And to answer the the question of where did they come from, they actually came from my audience. Uh, I I had written a couple of books on the theme of elegance. Uh, my very first book was called The Elegant Solution, and it was based on my experience uh, w uh, with Toyota of being a, a sort of a captive consultant for eight years, where their entire uh, worldview was one of less is best. And, um, you know, I wrote a book in 2006. It was the same year that John Mida's book came out, and I was like, wow, that, that's actually, the, it was 100 pages long, his book. And I was like, you know, that's an elegant book. That is, that's what I should have written. Um, he had this sort of Zen master way of writing. And um, it really became, um, you know, a mantra for me, the notion of, of elegance. But elegance, and, and I define elegance as um, uh, achieving the maximum effect with the minimum means, with a focus on the minimum means part, um, which leads you down the path of subtraction, uh, minimizing the means that you use to uh, get impact and, and power, if you will. Um, and as I began hitting the lecture circuit and talking about elegance, it was such a lofty concept. Um, outside of the, the scientific and mathematical and, and uh, world and the, the world of physicists that, you know, they talk about elegance and elegance solutions all the time, um, it, it wasn't something that was in the everyday vernacular. And, and people would, would tell me they really needed some sort of, you know, ground level 
takeaways, some, some handrails, some, some guideposts that they could apply the concept of elegance to their world. And as I began structuring uh, different talks, I began thinking in terms of, of nuggets that were uh, distinct you know, laws, rules, guides, if you will, uh, to elegance, and that's really how the whole thing evolved. So it, it came from users, if you will, uh, and and what resonated with them in terms of the ability to apply the theme of elegance in a real-world way. You know, the first rule of subtraction that you talk about in your book, uh, it's called what isn't there can often trump what is. And it works off the point that we often create things based on our assumptions, and not necessarily on what we observe. And I think this is a mistake that leaders make as well, where they assume they understand the challenges and realities their employees face and make decisions based on those assumptions instead of on what they observe or hear from their employees as to what's really going on in their organization. So how do we make this mind shift from creating or innovating and even leading based on what we observe as opposed to what we assume is going on or what we think our employees or customers need? Well, I think the, the word uh, that you used is the key to the answer to the question, which is observation. The hardest thing that I've ever had to do uh, with any of my clients is to, is to uh, as Steve Blank says, get them out of the building. Um, it, is, it is the first thing that a good designer or design firm will do when they're trying to design a new solution, it's the first thing IDEO, for example, um, did, uh, you know, with Procter and Gamble, um, you know, to get them out into stores, experience things from the user or consumer or client's point of view, and then design things, you know, to solve problems that people are facing. But the hardest thing is to get out of the building and go and observe. Observation. When I was at Toyota, one of the, the, the key principles, operating principles, uh, it was a Japanese phrase uh, called Genchi Genbutsu. Um, two words, Genchi and Genbutsu, means go look, go see. Um, go to the source to get the facts. It is not enough to read a data report, a marketing report, uh, to take secondhand or at someone's word something you really, and it's not about not trusting someone, it's going and observing a problem in the context in which it's actually. Uh, occurring so that you have that empathetic input uh, where you really truly understand the hassles, the pain points, the things that the jobs that are trying to get done um, by someone else. Only then can you really, really understand and shape your reaction to that particular situation, whether you're a leader uh, and your customers are your key lieutenants, your employees. Uh, or your customers. Um, there's value everywhere you look. And um, it really is the, the notion of understanding through observation um, and, and empathy. In listening to you talking about observing to see how people are, are using your product, it reminds me of a story I read a few years back of a detergent company. They released a product in India and they thought, you know what, people probably don't have a lot of money. So they probably can't afford to use a lot of our product. So let's make one that they don't have to use a lot of it. So it won't make a lot of suds. So they won't have to use a lot of water. And so it'll be very water efficient and very low usage. And what they found is, is that people weren't enjoying their product. They kept going to their competitor and they couldn't understand because the competitor 
you had to use more of their product and it required more water to rinse it. And here we're trying to be environmentally uh, improved and so forth. So they finally decided to go out and visit various towns and meet people who do laundry to understand what the problem was. And what they found was when people would wash their clothes with this detergent, they noticed that following the directions of using a certain amount, it wasn't creating a lot of suds, which was the whole point, because that way you use less water to rinse them off. So they were thinking it's not soapy enough. So they had to keep adding more. And so in a mm. consequence, because they kept adding more, they were actually using more than of the competitor's brand, which made them feel this was not a very efficient soap. So they didn't like it. So the idea that they had of let's try to make it so they use less was not really what they wanted. What they needed to see was that it would create lots of suds because that would give the impression that it is actually working and cleaning their clothes. Right, right. So it, it really ties into that idea you're, you're mentioning here about how we really have to go out and observe and really also let people talk. Let's hear what they have to say about what it is that they need and what is it that they see are the, the challenges or opportunities that need to be addressed for them to move forward and accomplish what they want to do? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, those stories abound. Um, I, I saw it I saw it at uh, Toyota when they failed uh, the end of the 90s, early 2000s in trying to attract the Gen Y uh, market with the Toyota brand. Um, you know, they, they thought that if they had glitzy marketing, uh, that is specifically geared to you know the 18 to 24 year old crowd that uh, you know of course they would want a Toyota. Well, it really didn't matter uh, to an 18 year old how you marketed um, the Toyota brand. You stick it on a cell phone, stick it on you know the the internet, or put it in a cool magazine. It doesn't much matter because mom and dad are have that car. Uh, in the driveway and in the garage, and there's no way I want to drive what mom and dad are driving. You better, you know, and it woke them up to the fact that they needed a a altogether different product, and they they had you know done what they had not done their principle of Genji Kimbutsu. They had not gone out to the marketplace, and so they had to get back to that. And they went out, you know, and they they attended raves and and, and uh, you know extreme sporting events and urban art shows because that's where the young folks were hanging out. And lo and behold, they discovered that Gen Y loves personalization. Um, it's not about their stuff. It's what they can do to their stuff. Uh, you see it in, you know, tattoos and piercings e even. Um, but so they had to come up with a very spare vehicle that could be customized. And when they did that, the, you know, they came up with the Scion and the XB. They stripped out hundreds of, of standard options and accessories so that, to make room uh, for what the kids wanted to do to their car. And the thing flew off the lot and it actually saved the brand. Right. You know, it's a good point that you're bringing up about... Um it's how people experience things because this leads into that discussion you have about the second rule of subtraction where you talk about how the most effective experience we can have is created not by establishing a long list of rules or in the case of Toyota having a long list of standard features but by simply providing one or two simple rules and then leaving the participants to self-regulate themselves in order to encourage participation by all the team members in some ways one could look at the scion uh, and see that's exactly what they did by limiting what were standard options letting people pick and choose. Now, if we bring this in terms of how we lead teams, it's kind of intuitive in a certain degree where we want to delegate not just tasks, but authority to make decisions to ensure the collective success of our team. But how does this also work in terms of tapping and driving creativity and innovation in our organization? I mean, how do you ensure that limiting those rules that you provide won't result in your team going too far off on a tangent 
from what they need to do to remain competitive and on target? Well, you definitely do need to have certain constraints um, put in place, but the notion is that those constraints don't need to be exhaustive, as you said. They don't need to be um, uh, complex. Uh, a few simple ones um, to allow people to to think either inside or outside the box, as it were. You do, though, need to create a box, and I think it's a popular misconception that you know, we, we talk all the time about thinking outside the box when it comes to creativity and innovation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what's the box? Let's think about what that box is. Well, typically the box is uh, a system. Um, and when there is a system at play, you have only two choices with respect to a new idea, if you think about it. You either need to make your new idea fit into that box uh, or you need to provide an altogether new box to house that idea or else it just floats free as another of the billions of inventions that are patented every year that never become a commercially viable product or service. Um, so, you know, uh, put it in, in language that everyone knows and is familiar with. Let's think about, for example, the light bulb. We are, that's the quintessential icon of creativity and innovation, Right. But that wasn't really what made the light bulb work, the, 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 the gadget itself. Edison knew that what the real problem was uh, and the solution that he needed to provide was an all, a brand new system, an, an on-demand lighting and power. It wasn't the, Incandescent lighting had already been uh, invented uh, over in, in Europe, in, in the UK. Um, yes, he created a, a gadget that... that captured that incandescent lighting, but what do you do with that light bulb once you have it? How's it going to work? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, need, you need sockets and switches and power lines and conduits, and, and you need a whole system to make that light bulb work in a lamp, a lamp that doesn't have any sockets and switches and plugs. <laughs> so he basically spent a, a good deal of his time and money over several years creating that power grid uh, in New York. So um, that, I think, is uh, an answer to the question is that a box is very simple. Um, just four perpendicular lines connecting. It's not complex. It's not a maze. Um, it paints a constraint that people know what to do with. Watch a kid play in a yard. There's a sandbox in that yard. There may be acres of ground and play sets. Uh, where do they spend most of their creative time? right inside that sandbox with a couple of tools uh, and they're most imaginative there with a couple of, of not tools, but, you know, toys. Um, so it's the notion of, of, of a simple structure that allows people the freedom to be creative and be innovative either inside or outside that particular box, but the box needs to be there. I'm glad that you brought that idea about it's not a matter of removing constraints as it is creating those constraints so that we have, in a sense, a way of, for our, our, our brains to kind of solve how to do something. Because this kind of reflects uh, something you discuss in the third rule of subtraction, limiting information engages the imagination. Now, in storytelling, for example, this is a very important tool to use as it allows uh, the storyteller to keep the, the audience interested and their curiosity peak because, as you were inferring, our brains are wired to solve problems in order to ensure we have a clearer understanding of what we're experiencing. But to delve in this a little bit deeper, 
how does this work in an organizational setting when we're trying to tap into our collective creativity to spur our ability to innovate and change? How do we, because uh, obviously a lot of times we hear about people complaining that there is that limiting of information going on in our organization where information is used as a source of power. But in this case, how are we then balancing limiting information so that we're not creating ambiguity in order so that we can maintain our perception of power? but instead are limiting it so that we're engaging our employees' imagination to provide greater clarity about what we're trying to accomplish. Well, you know, there is a, a, there's a wonderful experiment, not experiment, exercise, um, that I learned from uh, Nick Obolensky in the UK um, who talks about and writes about adaptive leadership. And I use this in my uh, creativity uh, and innovation workshops uh, all the time. It's a wonderful thing. It doesn't take very long to do. But basically, let's say you've got 30 people uh, in the room. Um, and you want to make the point that, um, A, you don't need exhaustive rules to uh, gain clarity. Um, and B, that a little bit of information might be all that you need to create the kind of organization. And I'll say it again. Organization that you really want an alignment that you really want in a company or corporation. And it goes something like this. You've got 30 people in front of you, and you give them a very simple bit of information, a bit of, of constraint, if you will. You say this. You say, I'd like, to, I'd like you to position yourself equal distance from two other people in the room. You don't have to be right in the middle. It's not about uh, anything other than that simple rule. You don't have to tell them that you're picking them. There needs to be no uh, communication whatsoever. There does not need to be exhaustive uh, people telling uh, each other where to move. Simply position yourself equal distance from two other people in that room and then watch them go. In a group of about 30, how long do you think it takes them to come to sort of a, a, a static alignment or array where every single person is exactly equal distance between two other people that they've chosen? How long do you think on average it takes 30 people? 30 people. Um, given, I would say about four to five minutes. Under a minute. Really? Under a minute. And... 30 people. 30 people. Under a minute. You, you can actually see this. Uh, he's got, there's a video uh, online. And then he asked the question, how long do you think it would take if we had put one of you in charge? <laughs> and there, and yeah, what you just yeah. did, what you just did, laugh, 30 people laugh. Why Absolutely. do they laugh? Right. Why do they laugh? Because we know someone's going to start putting on assumptions and directing us to do stuff that we could probably intuitively do ourselves because we can figure it out. And that's the point. It is, um, uh, that, that's the, it's, a, it's a perfect way to answer the question. And I, if I do this with a dozen people, it's roughly, I don't know, 15 seconds uh, it takes them to do. So a simple rule, limited information, and you get the alignment and the clarity that you want. Now, that's a very simple exercise to make the point. Obviously, it's tougher to do when you've got 150,000 people 
um, you know, scattered across the world to gain that kind of alignment. But the point is that it will take you four to five times longer sometimes if you simply blast out information and a laundry list of, of exhaustive rules, regulations, do this, don't do that. You will actually um, uh, sub-optimize the very thing that you're trying to achieve. Right, right. That's a great example. You know, and, and in many ways, I'm just reflecting what you're saying here. I mean, what we're really saying here is that this is really about leaving out just enough information or uh, inserting white spaces in our organizational vision so our employees can insert themselves, their own goals, their aspirations, their motivations, in order to make that vision as much their own as it is your organization's. Yeah, you know, I think the uh, one of the key roles of any leader uh, is to create the proper context. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a colleague of mine that I spent some time with um, who is a uh, urban designer in the UK, uh, Ben Hamilton Bailey, he, he designs shared spaces um, where there really aren't any traffic rules or, or regulations or signs or controls, but you provide the proper context, the proper social context. And when you do that, you don't need to have all those rules and information because people are intelligent. And he likes to say this. He says, when you don't need a sign in your living room that says, don't spit on the floor. <laughs> no, you just really don't. But but effectively, we do that in our companies, right? We, yeah. we don't treat people like adults. And we, we neglect the fact that in a certain context, in a certain setting, you don't need to be explicit about things because things are understood. You only get that understanding, though, um, through keen observation um, and really being steeped in a culture, in a context. Um, but we do that all the time. We, we put signs all the time that effectively say don't spit on the rug or don't spit on the floor in someone's living room. You know, this is a great segue to your um, your fourth rule of subtraction. Creativity thrives under intelligent constraints. Um, and, you know, in your book, you actually point out how several studies have shown that our creativity increases not when we're free of limitations, but when we operate under them. However, you, like, as you're pointing out now, um, constraints alone can also impair our creativity. And so what we need are not signs that say, don't spit on the living room floor, but what we need instead are limitations that actually challenge us, that still give us a sense of hope that while this goal might seem improbable, it's nonetheless something we can figure a way to uh, achieve. Yeah, you know, it, it, that is the operative word, intelligent. Um, it, it's, it seems, people seem to glaze over it. Uh, you didn't, uh, you keyed in on it right away. That is the most important part of that particular, uh, little law. Um, intelligence requires a certain thinking through of what it is, um, that you truly want to achieve. And, you know, sort of what is that dramatic destination that's going to pull people in, um, galvanize them and motivate them to do things in a different way. And that sort of lands us on the doorstep of uh, big, hairy, audacious, stretch kinds of goals. One of the things that you always hear, I always hear, I don't know about you, but I, I always, um, you know, at a certain level of an organization, somewhere down in the middle, um, you hear grumblings of, well, I don't have enough resources to innovate. They want me to innovate, I don't have enough resources. Um, and generally speaking, um, that is, I find, to be a cop-out. Because if you think about all of the great 
stories that we love to read, the Googles of the world, the, the, the Apples of the world, uh, where do they always begin? Well, they tend to begin where? In someone's garage. Garage. Yeah. And, and that, you know, is that because guys just like hanging out in the garage <laughs> and that's where they're most creative? I, I, I tend to, to doubt that. I think that they're there in, in the garage um, because they have to be because they don't have what? Resources. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of space. They don't have furniture. They don't have people. Um, what they do have, though, is that idea that they think is going to change the world. So how do you how do you recreate that kind of feeling in a large organization? The only way that I think that you can really truly uh, do that on a sustainable way is to set constraints in terms of goals, uh, dramatic goals. Um, that require people to have the kind of reaction that is the kind of reaction um, that, for example, uh, you know, all the Toyota engineers and designers had when uh, uh, AG uh, Toyota said in the mid-80s, we want you to, to create, design and create, produce uh, and sell a luxury performance vehicle that not just matches but beats the top-of-the-line BMW in, and Mercedes in every objective category measured by car and driver, and we want to do it in about four years. 3,700 people collectively you know, raised their hands and said, that's, that's impossible. It's just impossible because all the goals conflict. Um, you know, every goal that, that you have that you want to achieve to top those two vehicles conflict. Um, you know, you're talking about, gosh, um, the way a car looks, the way it handles, how much it weighs, how much fuel it consumes, how fast it goes, how it accelerates. Um, all those kinds of things um, actually conflict because if you want a car, for example, that has the best acceleration, you need a pretty big engine. Um, and a big engine weighs more, and it guzzles more gas. Well, if you're trying to achieve the, the most fuel-efficient car, because that's one of the things that car and driver rates, uh, and curb weight, uh, which is something that they rate, uh, those goals conflict. A big, heavy, gas-guzzling engine, and one that goes through the air slower because styling at that time was all about angles, um, that conflicts directly. So they had to rethink everything, everything about a luxury performance, and they had to redefine it, reimagine it. Um, in so doing, they came up with hundreds of, of innovations, but it wasn't right out of the box. There were 900 engine prototypes, uh, for gosh sakes. But when the Lexus LS400 did hit the, uh, hit the market, it did beat the BMW um, 735i, which is the top of the line, and the, the Mercedes 420 SEL, which was the top of the line at the time in 1989. They shipped a couple of the uh, for, uh, a Cadillac dealer in Southern California, bought two of the early uh, LS400s, promptly shipped them off to Detroit to have GM dismantle them, which they promptly did, and the, the mechanics concluded, guess what? This car cannot be built. <laughs> so, um, but it was the constraints that drove that creativity and innovation. And it, they weren't limitations, they were goals. So, um, I hope that makes sense. But it's the, the operative word is intelligent. Well, I think it makes perfect sense. Cause I think the, the Lexus story demonstrates how uh, the problem we present needs to have a clear goal and address a challenging need for our organization so that people have enough direction to know what they need to accomplish without being hindered by constraints or limitations which basically serve only to impair their thinking rather than liberate it. 
Right. Yeah. You do, you not you don't want to do what I think many uh, of the not so good you know teachers of the world do, which is to instruct uh, a student on exactly what to do with their blank piece of paper when in art class. You know, mm-hmm. if someone draws a a, a five legged uh, zebra that's purple. Um, you can't tell that kid that that's not a zebra. Uh, that 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 will stunt their creativity and imagination. Um, you can't say, "Well, zebras aren't purple." Uh, you know, it's just a matter of of how far you go. And I think that we inadvertently do that. We put speed bumps up um, in our organizations, where what we really need are speed lanes uh, that um, are going somewhere. And in the speed lane, you still have shoulders on the road and curbs that you can't go over. Um, and the, but there's a starting and an end point. So you know, to your point. You know, readers of my blog are no doubt familiar with how I love to take uh, research or studies from completely unrelated areas and basically take the insights or the findings that they have and demonstrate an application in how we lead our organizations. And this is something that you do as well in discussing your fifth law of subtraction, uh, which is an interesting play on words that break is an important part of breakthrough. In this chapter, you describe this interesting treatment that's been used lately to treat people who suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorder. And what's interesting about it is that you also show how it can also help the rest of us understand how we can shift our perceptions about making a change so we can achieve those breakthroughs we all hope to attain. I was wondering uh, if you could describe how this process works and how it applies to those of us who thankfully don't suffer from OCD in terms of how we can shift our perceptions about making a change. Right, yeah, I will, um, uh, without getting um, too deep into uh, exactly what it is. I was interested in um, the work of, uh, of Jeff Schwartz, uh, UCLA, um, not because he has a practice dealing uh, with OCD patients n- without using drugs um, per se, but because of the effects he's able to achieve in in overcoming that kind of locked up brain. He has a great book called Brain Lock. Um, and I, I came to understand that the brain and the mind are, are, are not necessarily one and the same. Um, he's been successful in, re- in being part of a movement that has reversed years of dogma that says the brain is wired, it's wired the way it is, and you cannot change your gray matter. Um, and that's just simply false now, and we know it to be false. We know that neuroplasticity, as it's called, um, which is the which is change. It, it's it, when you change your mind, you can actually physically change your brain. Right. Uh, you you change the way connections uh, are made, and it's it's a phenomenon that I think goes to the heart of breakthrough. Um, when you and when I say break is the important part of breakthrough, there are two kinds of break. There are the kinds that you make and the kinds that you take. Um, this is about making a break, a, uh, making a break from convention, making a break from the patterns that that sort of rule our world. Our brains are unbelievably great at pattern making. Um, they make it, you know, uh, our brains and their patterns allow us to make it through the day. Um, they they make us more effective, but sometimes they can get in the way. Um, and what he's been able to demonstrate with his, uh, his it's called a four-step program, 
Um, and the first thing that you need to do is to, uh, uh, there are four R's, and I don't want to go through all each step, but basically when a thought comes into, when you're an OCD patient, you have these thoughts, and these thoughts rule your life. Um, he, through training and coaching, he teaches people to, when that thought enters your brain, is to f completely relabel it um, as something other than then this is me. It's simply a glitch in my brain. That's all it is. And once you can sort of reduce it and relabel it to something else, you can deal with it and you can handle it better. And if you call it just a glitch, then we can fix a glitch. And you can replace that thought with another thought, a pleasant thought. And over time, um, the debilitating thoughts get replaced with happier thoughts and you replace the urge for example to constantly wash your hands or constantly go back into the house to make sure the stove is off which you know you can't get out of the house because you're constantly going back in um, because you're uh, obsessed uh, and, and your behavior is compulsive that you have to check that stove with oh, I'm going to go do some gardening um, and your brain rewires itself and what to me is fascinating about that is that if you can rewire the brain in that kind of situation where it's all locked up, my gosh, it has to be uh, infinitely easier to have new thinking patterns when it comes to creativity and innovation in business. And that was the genesis of my interest. I think it's um, completely applicable. Uh, that, you know, you do need to break certain patterns and routines in order to create new space to innovate. Right. And, you know, what's interesting about this is how it mirrors a lot of what we read today about uh, creativity and innovation, about how it rises not by sticking to what we know, replicating the same processes over and over, but through going back to your first law, challenging our assumptions of what we think is required so we can be more open to making the kind of change that is created through this process that uh, is being used on these OCD patients where we are basically rewiring our brains so that we are creating those new patterns where something that we might see as being urgent or something that we see as, well, this is what's possible so we can't do something different because that's not possible. Now suddenly we're more open to it because we've lessened the influence or the strength of those neural pathways in our brain. Yep. Yes. And, you know, when it comes to leadership and organizations, um, it, for me, talking about um, how Jeff Schwartz deals with OCD is, was, a, was a segue into um, how you might have to take those concepts and apply them in a large organization that does things in a certain way that has certain... You know, budgetary restrictions, um, plans in place, a normal ongoing operation, um, sometimes you need to break away. Um, and it was a segue into the notion of skunk works. Um, and sometimes that's typically uh, what you actually have to do is to make that break physically um, and sort of set up a, a, a shadow organization. It, it's what, you know, uh, Steve Jobs did when, you know, he sort of broke away from Apple and moved down the street, uh, taking with him a couple of key uh, designers and engineers and began working on the Mac. Um, you know, he called everybody pirates and they had a good old, you know, swashbuckling time. 
um, but breaking away from the norms that exist that can inhibit you. And it's very difficult to break those chains in just the same way sometimes it's difficult for an OCD patient without the right tools um, to just fix themselves. Yeah, it's, it's virtually impossible to do. So, uh, yeah, that was, that, was the, that was the tie. So, agreed. Right. And, and this leads us to your last law of subtraction, law number six, which says that doing something isn't always better than doing nothing. Now, what this rule refers to is how neuroscience has shown that instead of putting our nose to the grindstone from nine to five, we need to give ourselves periodic breaks to allow our mind to wander so we can have those aha moments that often coincide with finding breakthroughs or some innovative way to resolve an existing problem. So how does tuning out help us to figure out the maze that's in our minds and how do we go about doing this in light of all these different channels and outlets that are now vying for our attention? Uh, that thing that we were discussing uh, before our talk today of how we have so little time to even just read all those books that we have on our desk. How do we make sure in light of all this uh, greater demands on our time and our attention that we are actually ensuring that we give ourselves these periodic breaks to allow for mind wandering? Well, like anything else, it is a discipline. Um, and you find it more prevalent in Eastern uh, societies than you do in Western uh, societies. Uh, we are so, here in the West, we're so action-oriented. And our, our bias is to be doing something. You know, heaven forbid that uh, we happen to be daydreaming when the boss walks by. Um, but, you know, lo and behold, it turns out <laughs> your best work might not look to be productive. Uh, to all the world. It might look to be, um, you know, just being lazy. Uh, so there's two parts to the answer to your question. One is the science part. Um, we, we know uh, that we cannot speed up the creative, the sudden creative insights that we get, um, the eureka moments. Um, history is, is deep with these epiphanies that happen far removed from... Uh, the practice of solving a problem in your work. Uh, where do we get our best ideas? Uh, we tend to get them when we are doing something of a routine nature, uh, when we have separated ourselves from the problem we're trying to solve, whether that's in the shower, whether that's uh, immediately following a nap, whether that's taking a long uh, walk, whether it's driving on the freeway, things that don't require us to think uh, and use our executive brains, as it were, but rather use our default brains. Um, and something happens in the hippocampus where those connections, which is what creativity truly is, it's creating uh, connections from disparate things, different inputs, um, to emerge with a sudden creative insight. We know a couple of things. We know that those sudden creative insights are immediately preceded by a certain kind of uh, brave brain wave length. Um, it's one that indicates a quiet mind. It's one that is the brain wave that length that is a uh, gamma wave that is indicative of, for example, uh, what great meditators are able to achieve with a quiet mind. Um, those brain waves immediately precede the sudden creative insight, the eureka moment that we always get. Our brains are quietest when we are doing something that doesn't require them to be actively. Uh, you know, using their machinery, taking a shower, um, taking a nap, taking a walk, driving, 
those kinds of things. That's when we get these great insights. So we cannot speed up the creativity process. Um, all we can do is to let go. But that's very difficult in the business world. Uh, so, so that leads to the second part of the question. How do you effectively, which is what you asked me, how do you effectively ensure that you have more of these sort of uh, eureka moments on a routine basis almost? Well, you've got to build the notion of break and doing nothing into your work. There is a reason why I think that the uh, seven-week, I believe it's a seven-week meditation program at Google, at Google U, has a seven-month, I think it's a seven-month, uh, waiting list. <laughs> um, wow. People are learning to meditate. Uh, Larry Ellison of Oracle um, you know, demands his executives do it. There's a, a meditation room. Um, some of the better cultures, more creative cultures, have recognized the fact that, that doing nothing is, is sometimes better uh, than doing something. Um, so there, and, but there, you know, not everyone can meditate. Um, so what are some of the other techniques to build those kinds of breaks and quiet time for the brain in? Well, there's daydreaming walks, purposeful daydreaming. Um, for example, there are, there's pulsing your work. Uh, when I wrote the laws of subtraction, I followed, uh, the advice of Tony Schwartz, um, who had, who had written a book about uh, uh, engagement and excellence and uh, the notion of pulsing your work so that you you basically take a break every 90 minutes. Whether you want to or not, you may be in full creative flow. Force yourself to go take a 10-minute break where you change your space, change your, change your uh, outlook, change your physical space. Um, lo and behold, I had the same... Uh, thing happened to me when I when I wrote this book. It only took me six weeks, versus the six months it took me to write the previous book, where I spent you know all day at the grindstone, and then I I I'd let it sit overnight, and I came back to it, and I was like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking yesterday? Um, and so the notion of pulsing your work um, is in line with your biorhythms that happen when you sleep. Your biorhythms don't stop just because you're awake. Um, you are much more effective when you take those 90 breaks every 90 minutes. When I do training, I make sure that I don't go beyond 90 minutes. I know that stress builds up, creativity wanes after that 90 minutes, and just the short 10-minute, 15-minute um, get away from the, the, the things that we're doing kind of break really uh, just sort of makes the whole day flow that much better. So there, And there are a number of, of, of other tricks that you can do to quiet your mind. Um, but there are ways to do it. So that's the long answer to the short question of how does it work and how does it work uh, in business. So, And you know what's interesting is that it reflects um, something I read in a study earlier this week where researchers found that when study participants were encouraged to go and take a walk in nature, walk out in the park and so forth, their creativity and productivity actually increased compared to those who stayed at the work table. And even when they had study participants just look at a picture of nature, okay, they're just looking at a picture, they're still at the work desk, that actually also helped to improve their problem-solving capabilities than those who basically just focused on the tasks that were being assigned to them. So again, that reinforces this idea that we do have to come to terms with the reality that we can't be operating from literally from nine to five nonstop that, you know, we do need those periodic breaks where our energy levels will 
you know, take a dip below and so forth. And we need to recognize that and allow our minds and our bodies to rejuvenate so we can become more productive, more creative, and uh, more effective in the work we do. Yeah, and you know what we what we tend to do is we just go go go, and we hit that ninety minute mark, and our bodies instinctively and our minds instinctively know that we really do need to take a break. But but you're you're you know you're feeling kind of tired. You're you're like oh man, nothing's coming to me. What we what we inadvertently do um, is uh, substitute, um, you know, for that energy. We'll go get a sugary drink. Mm. We'll go get a power bar. We'll we'll do anything but what we what the brain really needs, which is a, a fundamental shift in space, shift in time, shift in focus. Um, so uh, and that that just further exacerbates things when you you know you go get a candy bar, you get a coke or something else because um, that jacks your sugar level up, um, which uh, does all kinds of weird things. Then you get that dip, and then cortisol levels. There's a whole. There's a, there's a whole uh, ecosystem in your body and brain that uh, we mess with chemically that um, really does affect our, our creativity and innovation. So um, you see some of the more uh, innovative firms out there. They have game spaces. They have meditation rooms. They have quiet pods. They have uh, – and it's starting to gain, um, gain in acceptance uh, where – you don't have to be looking busy all the time. Uh, it's okay that if you get your, as I do right now, my feet kicked up on my desk and I'm sort of staring at the ceiling. It's okay uh, to look that way. Right, right, absolutely. You know, Matt, there's there's so much more to these laws and there's certainly much more that we can discuss about how applying them in our leadership can benefit our organization, um, not just in terms of our ability to innovate, but also in terms of nurturing our organization's long-term growth and ability to thrive. So I do want to thank you, Matt, for helping to provide some insights into these six laws and the value they offer for how we can spur our creative collectivity and to create those winning conditions for our organization. Oh, my pleasure. It's been fun chatting. I've been talking with Matthew E. May about his latest book, The Laws of Subtraction, Six Simple Rules for Winning in the Age of Excess Everything. To learn more about Matt, his writings, and his work on creativity and innovation, visit the webpage for this episode at tanvirnasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at tanvirnasir.com. And if you found my show on iTunes, please be sure to join other listeners in rating this show. Until next time, this is Tavernasir. Thanks everyone for listening.